Okay, so the first uh, reading is from Genesis 17, uh, verses 1 to 14. It's Genesis 17, 1 to 14. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you, and we will greatly increase your numbers. Uh, Abram fell face down, and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner. Those who are not your offspring, uh, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The second reading comes from Galatians 2, verses 1 to 10. Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed to, as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preached among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, 
they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Pephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognised the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Alrighty, let's pray. Gracious Lord, you speak to us by your word, and so we pray that you do just that now, even through these feeble words of mine. We pray that by your spirit, you would enlighten us to know you and to live for you. In Christ's name, amen. All right. The truth will set you free. Famous words. No doubt you've heard them before. These six simple words were spoken by a young Jewish carpenter over 2,000 years ago. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't often refer to Jewish carpenters for inspiring quotes, particularly when they're 2,000 years old. But it is interesting to see how these words have impacted our world so profoundly. These words appear as the motto of many colleges and universities throughout the world, and they even appear engraved on the original headquarters building of the CIA. Isn't that interesting? The Central Intelligence Agency believes that the truth will set us free. Indeed, the pursuit of freedom forms a key part of our Western psyche, doesn't it? We, we value freedom, freedom of choice, freedom of speech, and freedom is something that we're prepared to fight for. The Americans fought for their freedom from the English. And most recently, of course, Ukraine fights for its freedom from Russian oppression. And yet, while freedom receives a positive treatment, our world does not share that same relationship with truth. Many today would join with the cynical Pontius Pilate in his question, what is truth? Truth nowadays is no longer singular, but pluriform. Everyone has their own truth, and they're entitled to it, or so they say. Truth has become subjective and malleable. But Jesus does not say that truth will free us. No, he says that the truth will set us free. So, it begs the question then, what is the truth to which he refers, and what does this truth free us from? As we continue our study in Paul's letter to the Galatians this evening, these two questions will come to the forefront. Paul is concerned to defend and proclaim the truth of the gospel. That is, that we have freedom in Jesus Christ and in him alone. And he does this by defending his apostleship, as we saw last week. Paul writes to the Galatians because he is concerned and, in fact, astonished that they would turn away so quickly from the gospel that he taught. 
But it's more than that. In turning away from his gospel, they are in fact turning away from the one who called them, from God himself. It would seem that Paul went to Galatia and preached the gospel to them, but after him came others that distorted the gospel of Christ. They perverted the truth. Now, so far, we haven't seen exactly what this entails, but we'll get our first glimpse this evening. In any case, in the face of this opposition, Paul writes to defend his apostleship and therefore the gospel that he preaches. He does this in two ways. The first way is that he wants them to know that his gospel is not from man, but from God. This is what we saw last week. His gospel, writes Paul, was received through a direct revelation of the risen Jesus Christ. He did not travel to Jerusalem, or at least not initially, but instead he spent three years teaching and preaching in Arabia and Damascus, and therefore had no opportunity to confer with those in Jerusalem. It was only then, he concedes, after three years that he spent a brief time with Peter, but the point is that he was still unknown to those persons of the churches in Judea. Paul's gospel is from God. And that's all very well, isn't it? And I know what you may be thinking. Anyone can claim that they've had a word from God. And moreover, Paul is not the only divinely appointed messenger of God. There are others. In fact, the originals are around. They're in Jerusalem, the place where it all started. So what do they say? Are they on the same page as Paul? Does Paul, or Paul makes the point of even saying that he didn't go to see them. So it's very easy to see how some might accuse Paul of teaching something that differs from the apostles in Jerusalem. What the Galatians need is an ancient fact-checker. Well, this week, we come to see the second way in which Paul defends his apostleship and his gospel. And we see it in the text that we've just read. Though he did not receive his gospel from man, and therefore his authority and apostleship come from God directly, he did travel to Jerusalem, he tells us, and he speaks with those that are esteemed. He goes with a Gentile Christian and a Gentile gospel. And what we'll see as we look through the passage this evening is that the truth is defended in a Gentile Christian and the truth is proclaimed in the Gentile gospel. So let's look at each of those in turn. First, a Gentile Christian. Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, that after 14 years, he went again to Jerusalem with Barnabas. Not surprising, Barnabas is his preaching companion. If you read through the Acts of the Apostles, you see the record of their work. But he does make special reference to Titus. Did you notice that? He mentions Titus as coming along with them, and we'll see in a moment why that's significant. So he goes up to Jerusalem according to a revelation, that's verse 2, and while he was there, he presented the gospel that he preaches to those that are esteemed. Why? Well, he writes that he goes in order to make sure that he was not running in vain or had not run in vain. Now, at this point, a few questions come to mind. Why now? Why after 14 years? And what does it mean, really, for Paul to be concerned that he might have run or had run in vain? I mean, this is, this is Paul the Apostle. 
Surely, if he were concerned about the veracity of his gospel, he would have gone earlier to check, to confer with those in Jerusalem. I mean, imagine working on a project at work and you're not quite sure what you need, but you think countless, countless, countless hours into it only to find that you did the wrong thing. And then multiply that by years and years, 14 years. It doesn't make sense. No, having done so many years of ministry and for the veracity of his gospel to then come into question, it stands to reason that Paul is concerned for those to whom he's preached. If we think about it, if those who had received his gospel were then to be deceived, he may indeed have run in vain. And so in going to Jerusalem, Paul presents his gospel to those of esteem and to put an end to the rumours and lies of those questioning his apostleship. So in verse 3, if you look with me now, we get our first glimpse of what this other gospel involves. He writes, verse 3, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. And he continues in verse 4, This matter arose because of some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. Do you notice the, the strong negative language? He says, infiltrated, spy, slaves. Although these so-called believers may look the part, they are in fact false. They look like everyone else, but at heart they have perverted the truth of the gospel. So it seems that the issue Paul is facing is not from outside of the church, but from within. And it seems that the issue concerns circumcision. Paul taught that salvation can be found in Jesus alone, but these false believers were teaching that in addition to Jesus. Note that they're not denying Jesus, they're saying that in addition to him, membership into God's people is, requires the Jewish sign of circumcision. Now it's not clear entirely what their motivations were in doing this, but what is clear, however, is that in trying to add Jesus, they're trying to add him onto their established religious system. They want to continue as they were, but with the benefits of Jesus. But Paul writes later on in chapter 6 that circumcision is kind of neither here nor there. It's actually not the point. But when circumcision becomes necessary for membership into God's people, then it becomes an obstacle, a wall, a blockage to freedom. And the gospel is no longer only by the work of Christ. The freedom that is offered then becomes conditional. It's something that we have to do. And so ironically, the gospel that ought to bring us freedom then enslaves us to rules and requirements. And so to this perversion of the truth, Paul offers a corrective, as we saw in verse 3. Even Titus, a Greek, therefore not a Jew, who was with Paul when he went and presented his gospel to those esteemed, this Titus was not forced to be circumcised. The original leadership of the Christian church in Jerusalem did not compel circumcision. These false believers, out of their concern for culture, perhaps, for traditions, they sought to undermine the Galatians' confidence in Paul as an apostle and teacher. But in Titus, 
In Titus, the truth of the gospel is defended. He, as an uncircumcised Greek, much like all of us, is the physical expression of the freedom we have in Jesus. Membership in God's family is not about an outward sign of circumcision, but the inward belief and trust in Jesus. Let me give you an example of a a more modern instance of what this might look like. I went to university, as we said before, and Andy was a friend of mine, not this Andy, another Andy. And Andy was an Egyptian fellow, very nice, pleasant chap, uh, and I believe he was more of a a Greek Greek Orthodox background. And so one day we realised we were both Christians, we were chatting, and I must have said something along these lines. I would have said, isn't it wonderful that the gospel is so simple? We only trust in Jesus. And of course he said, yes, isn't that great? Isn't it wonderful? But of course we do need to do X, Y, Z. We need to be a a good person. We need to do good deeds. But friends, this is not the gospel. The gospel is that we are saved by Jesus alone. He is entirely sufficient. We don't have to be good people, as it were. But as we learned in our previous series through Titus, grace transforms. Good works are not necessary for salvation, but they are the natural outflowing of the grace we've received. But it is critical not to confuse the two. Let's come back to Paul. And I have another question. Perhaps you've thought of it as well. Why is Paul so concerned about circumcision of all things? I mean, to be somewhat crude, really it's a a sniff and go. What's the big deal? Well, it's important to realise that circumcision is not just some kind of quirky cultural feature. For the Jews. No, as we saw in Genesis 17 read earlier, the command to be circumcised came from God himself. God promises to Abraham that he will make him into a great nation and that through him all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. And as a sign of this promise, God commands each of the males to be circumcised and to be set apart for God in doing so. Now, you'll see on your outlines, I've included a quote, two in fact, from theologian Edmund Clowney, and he summarizes the significance of circumcision well. Let me read it to you now. Circumcision was a ritual of cleansing for the uncircumcised or unclean. It is a cleansing of dedication, for it marks the acknowledgement of God's lordship. And in the context of covenant-making, this bloody rite performed on the male organ also included the sign of judgment against the covenant-breaker, with reference to his descendants. The threat of the sanction is expressed. Any uncircumcised male will be cut off because he has broken my covenant. So the cutting away in circumcision represents the putting away of uncleanness. But although circumcision symbolizes dedication, total dedication to God, as we see in the Old Testament throughout Israel's history, time and time again, they are unable to live this out. The demands of the law are too much. God is too perfect. Humanity is too flawed. But when God himself came, 
to live among us, the eternal word incarnate in the person of Jesus, the requirements represented by circumcision are fulfilled in him. Christ came to fulfill the promises of God's covenant. He was circumcised on the eighth day, presented to God in the temple as firstborn son and consecrated to the Lord. Already in his circumcision, Jesus suffered for us. His blood was spilled. But in him, circ- circumcision itself was fulfilled. Elsewhere in one of Paul's letters, he applies Christ's circumcision to what happened on the cross. Colossians chapter 2, you can look there afterwards, but for now, hear this. In him, you also were circumcised with a circumcision not made with hands, and the putting on, putting off of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Referring to that second quote from Edward, from Clowney, he writes, Paul thinks of a circumcision that cut off not a bit of flesh, but Christ's whole body in violent death. Christ endured what circumcision symbolized, the cleansing of judgment in death, the cutting off of the sinner. The circumcision of the Christian is God's doing, bringing us out of the death that our sins deserve into the life that Christ provides. We are circumcised by union with Christ and in his death. So do you see? To say that, ah, yes, Jesus, but also circumcision is to undermine fundamentally what Christ has achieved on the cross, to undermine the total sufficiency of his death. And so it is for that reason in verse 5, Paul writes that to these false believers they did not yield even for a moment. And this in order that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. This is the truth that sets us free, that Christ and Christ alone is sufficient for our salvation, that by his death we are healed. And so in the face of these false believers purporting the necessity of circumcision for salvation, Titus is not circumcised. The truth of the gospel is defended in a Gentile Christian. We are free only by the blood of Jesus. Everything and anything that is added to this promise undermines the freedom that it offers. Friends, there is only one gospel. And it's not about you. It's not about your truth. The gospel is very countercultural, especially in our world today. But it's not about me. It's not about what I can do. It's only about what Christ has done. And this is a liberating truth. Second and more briefly, the Gentile gospel. We've seen that Paul goes up to Jerusalem and presents his gospel to those esteemed. And upon hearing the gospel that Paul presents, those that are esteemed added, verse 6, nothing, nothing at all. There's nothing in Paul's gospel that he preached to the Gentiles that required adjustment or refinement or revision. Put simply, it was fake news that these false believers were spreading that suggested Paul's gospel was anything otherwise, that he was not in line with those in Jerusalem, that he was teaching a different gospel. No, nothing was to be added because what he taught was the truth. Instead, it becomes clear 
to the Jerusalem apostles and also to us that Paul is an instrument in the proclamation of the gospel. And it's a Gentile gospel, which is simply another way to say that the gospel is also for Gentiles, for us, not only for Jews. The apostles in Jerusalem note, as we see in verse 7, that Paul was entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter was to the circumcised. And what's more in verse 8, and this is truly mind-blowing, it's the same one who worked through Peter in his ministry that works through Paul in his. God actively works through the gospel to call and bring freedom to both Jew and Gentile. The promise to Abraham was that through him the nations would be blessed, Genesis 12. And Jesus, as the son of Abraham, fulfills this promise. In the gospel, by the blood of Jesus alone, do we have freedom from the requirements of the law, the right penalty for our sin, and from the judgment of death. The Jerusalem apostles saw that Paul was entrusted with the gospel and they knew the grace they recognised the grace that had been given to him. And so contrary to adding anything to the gospel, they extend to him and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Paul's apostleship is from God, but it's affirmed by those in Jerusalem. That's the second way he justifies his apostleship. And together they decide that as the apostles in Jerusalem reach out to the Jews, so Paul and Barnabas will reach out to the Gentiles but it's with the same gospel that they do so. Friends, the gospel is for all, no conditions, no reservations. And this relates back to what we were saying before, doesn't it? The freedom that comes only in Jesus. There's nothing that we can possibly contribute, and equally, there's nothing that we can possibly do to separate us from this freedom and life. It's available to you, and this is a wonderful assurance, isn't it, to those of us that have already received this freedom in Christ. Nothing can take it away from us. As the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. We asked at the beginning, what is the truth that sets us free? Well, friends, we've seen that it is salvation in Christ and in him alone. And what does it set us free from? Well, we've touched on that briefly, but we'll be exploring this idea further in this Galatians series, particularly in chapters 4 and 5, so stay tuned for that. But as we conclude today... Paul writes to the Galatians that they may know with certainty the authenticity of his apostleship and of his gospel. The words and teachings that they heard are true and as such they can be certain of their freedom in Christ and so can we. Praise God. Shall we pray? Gracious Lord, thank you for the gospel and the truth that we have freedom and forgiveness in your Son and in him alone. Help us to live for you as those free for the sake and glory 
of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.